I invite you to turn your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, as tonight we'll examine together verses 1 through 18. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. And tonight I am going to read from the Legacy Standard uh, version. I think it'll be helpful to have the covenant name of God, Yahweh, read just help us um, be there, in a sense, with Elijah at Mount Horeb or Sinai. Remember the scene. Uh, The context is the mountain, Mount Carmel, uh, up in the north of Israel, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, where there's been a showdown between the prophets of Baal and the Asherahs, um, maybe 900 or so prophets and prophetesses and one prophet of God and for all of their bloodletting and and dancing and carrying on Baal was silent and when Yahweh's slave his servant Elijah prayed fire came from heaven consumed the wood consumed the ox the sacrifice consumed the water consumed the stones And the people are crying, Yahweh, he is God. And Ahab has made his way back to Jezreel, which is about 15 miles inland. inland. And rain has come after three and a half years of a drought. And now we come to chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, And left his young man there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked for himself that he might die. And said, It is enough now, O Yahweh. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of Yahweh came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant pulled down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. 
and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh was passing by, and a great and strong wind was tearing up the mountains and breaking in, the pieces, the, in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. Then after the earthquake a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire a sound of a thin, gentle whisper. Now it happened that when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, pulled down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and you will arrive and anoint Hazael king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it will be that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your, this portion of your word. and We pray that you will bring us, in a sense, through the text to walk with your servant, Elijah, through this passage in these days. We ask it that we might be equipped to serve you in this dark and perverse generation. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This is a very important passage in the Old Testament, and I am burdened that you understand it well, because there are so many, maybe, well, there's ignorance of this passage, many don't know it, and if you followed Dale Ralph Davis's commentary at all, um, you'll find that there's quite a bit of, uh, I would agree with Dale Ralph Davis, quite a bit of misreading of this passage. The implications are massive for Christians, for those in ministry, And it's critical that you be equipped for your own soul as you serve the Lord Jesus and as you come alongside others who face difficulty in their Christian life and in serving Jesus. The context is an amazing event in which the power of Yahweh, of God, has been revealed. I mean, a revival's at hand. That's what's going on. I mean, you have a situation where you have the very king of Israel. Think of it being like the president of the United States. This is like, this is like Biden coming to know Jesus, practically. I mean, this is, this is Ahab and Jezebel. This is, uh, am, I, am I comparing Ahab to Biden? Yes. Um, and so this is, 
This is, is that on recording? Probably. Um, he's wicked. He, he loves things that are wicked. He loves things that are evil. He does not lead Israel in the ways of the Lord, but away from the ways of the Lord. Ahab has married Jezebel, who, whose very name speaks of Baal, Jezebel, and her house and her father, and we have all been devoted de- devotees of Baal, the, the man-made god of sky and of fertility. And at Mount Carmel there, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, there has been a scene that's taken place that has riveted the hearts of God's people throughout the generations. This is like, this scene is on par with David and Goliath, at least in my heart and my mind. This scene where the prophets of Baal, Elijah's by himself, and he calls the people to make a decision, finally, once and for all, who is God? God, Yahweh, the God who brought them out of Egypt, or the Baals and Asherahs that they worship? But it's time for a decision. And remember that God's calling us always to a time of decision. He doesn't share his worship. He doesn't share his servants. He demands loyalty, and he is revealed in the scriptures as a jealous God. But he is a God of power, and what a scene it must have been. I mean, we hear about meteor showers and so forth, but you're standing there, and it's quite a beautiful view, I'm sure, overlooking the Mediterranean. You're up on the highest point on this bluff. You're overlooking the sea. It's beautiful. But then you look up, and you see this fireball coming down, descending from the heavens, and you start taking your family and start kind of coming back, and that fireball comes down exactly placed to absolutely consume the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and all the water. And you're on your face in the dirt on Mount Carmel, and you're hoping that God will hear your plea. You're wanting him to know that you agree that he is God because you don't want that fireball to come on you. They take the prophets of Baal as ordered by God in the Old Testament, that those who were false prophets in Israel, and this is in Israel, among God's covenant people, they were to... uh, carry out capital punishment upon any false prophet in Israel. And so they did so. Elijah oversaw that. And then the day goes on and it hasn't rained for three and a half years. The drought is there. You remember how dry, I mean, it's really helpful right now how dry it is outside as far as helping us remember the text. And, and it's, it's, there's no rain. I mean, there's, there's no hay growing. There's nothing to eat there's starvation, there's disease. It is a drastic situation. And in the midst of all this drama, the servant of God gets on his knees, prays, and God sends rain for the first time in three and a half years. And then God strengthens Elijah after this amazing event to take up his clothing. You know, he didn't exactly have Nike shorts or Adidas running shoes. Nonetheless, God strengthened him to honor God, but also to honor Ahab as a prophet, running ahead as a herald to get people prepared for the coming of Ahab. And surely in the heart of Elijah, he's thinking, this is it. This is what I've been praying for. This is what I've been longing for my whole life in ministry. Finally, God's people are going to repent. We are on the cusp of a revival. And, and right now, there are the early marks of a revival. There is a confession of sin. There is a turning from sin. There is a break with idolatry and so forth. And, and even the king is apparently 
on board with Elijah. This is exciting. This is amazing. God is working in powerful ways. If you met or you saw Elijah running in front of Ahab from Mount Carmel, about 15, 20 miles to Jezreel, you probably would have seen a man who is exhausted, but who had on his face a a look of hope and of anticipation that his yearning that the 10 northern tribes would turn from their idolatry and turn back to the Lord. And then we come to chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel. And all of the momentum, all of the excitement, all of the joy just fizzles immediately. And the context of our text tonight is Jezebel raging. And it's a, it's a reminder to us, and for those who are young especially, but for all of us, to be wise and to look at the scriptures and take heed that such is the character of Satan and his hatred of God that he is not impressed by displays of the power of God unto repentance. And I grew up at a time in this country, not that long ago, I suppose, and, um, but some of you know what I'm talking about, where, where there was the, this movement among Christians. It was maybe in the 70s, early 80s, and led by men like Jerry Falwell, and I, and I, I appreciate Jerry Falwell in many ways, but James Dobson, I appreciate James Dobson in many ways. But there was, in my formative years, this idea that if only we can can assemble and organize ourselves as Christians and and exercise our arm politically enough and and we can elect someone conservative into office and and I'm not I I think it's good for Christians to be involved in politics and to try to make change and so forth but there is this idea if if only we can we can organize our numbers for for truly in that time there were a lot of professing Christians in the United States then there's going to be a great change in America and the political forces that were put into play were impressive to this day even secular newscasts uh, newsmen and women will talk about the evangelical vote But it didn't change anything in regard to the heart of this nation. Evil's unimpressed. Doesn't think much of it. And Jezebel, doesn't matter that fire fell from heaven in sight of everybody and there's all these witnesses. Doesn't matter that 500 of her prophets that she probably supports with her own funds have been slain. Doesn't matter that after three and a half years, People saw this prophet up on the mountain praying with his head between his knees and for the first time it's rained. It doesn't matter. She hates God with a satanic hatred. And we need to understand that. It's exactly what the New Testament says. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And they are unmoved by displays of the power of God. Satan knows God's powerful. All the demons know God's powerful and Christ's powerful. That's why when they met Jesus in the form of legion and the demoniac, they knew who Jesus was. 
but it doesn't lead to any kind of fear or repentance on their part. They fear God, I suppose, in his presence, of course. But Jezebel rages. She is livid, and she is intent on doing to Elijah what Elijah did to her prophets, slaying them. She wants his head. She doesn't work through Ahab. She just sends her own messenger to Elijah. So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them. In other words, one of the prophets that you slayed about this time tomorrow. This is the context. Evil is raging. It's unimpressed. It's unmoved. It's unrepentant. It's unhinged. And we ought to be chastened and wise and never think that the ungodly or the wicked of this world will necessarily change simply because of a powerful sermon or of a church that's growing or of the change in someone's life. Sadly, we need to have a healthy view of the persistence of sin apart from the work of God. So this is the context. Jezebel is raging. Evil is raging. And I, I live in a day like that where evil is just raging. Not content to be peaceful but wants to press on and impose upon every single one of us that we bow and we worship the evil attitudes of the day we live in. It's this context then that leads us to the heart of this passage, which is found in verses 3 through 18. I want to look with you at three, I'll give you a little outline here. In verses 3 through 8, Yahweh ministers to his servant in his fear. Secondly, we find that Yahweh, or God, meets his servant in his depression and his despair. And thirdly, Yahweh speaks to his servant with covenant-keeping calm. First, let's look at verses 3 to 8 together. Jezebel's raging, and we learn in verse 3 that Elijah was afraid, rose and went for his life. And right here, as Dale Ralph Davis points out, and, and I have heard this and sermons that I've heard or commentaries that I've read in the past. Here, a whole amount of criticism is heaped on Elijah, as though he is a failure here. What a, what a man of little faith. He goes from, you know, there's all kinds of sermons and, and books, you know, written about Elijah on Mount Carmel's a man of faith, but then with Jezebel, he becomes a man of fear. I'm inclined to agree with Dale Ralph Davis's perspective that here we have a servant who's broken. I'm actually going to save a little bit of reading for later. Maybe there was a day when I would have criticized Elijah. Maybe in my early days of ministry, I, I would have given a sermon on, you know, let's not be like Elijah one day calling down fire and the next day cowering. 
until you've lived a little bit of the Christian life or been in ministry for a little while and your heart's been utterly crushed. Has that ever happened to you? Where you had hopes and you had desires and you prayed? Maybe you even saw some initial hope in, in this person that you were working with or this person that you were praying for. You were like Elijah, in a sense, on your knees, but looking on the horizon to see the smallest cloud of hope. And, and maybe you saw for a while signs of life and signs of turning, and, and you were encouraged, and, and then something happens. And you see the strength of evil, the persistence of sin, and your heart is utterly broken. And why wouldn't he be afraid? I'd be afraid. Somebody sends you a messenger. And you're living in the seas. He's in the same town as Jezebel. He's in Jezreel at this point. Elijah. I mean, he's hoping maybe I'm going to get a message. Jezebel heard that. Wow. And she's reconsidering. Jezebel's a servant of Yahweh now. (laughs) That's not what he hears. I have a message from the queen. Tomorrow, I'm to give your head to her. Good day. (laughs) Never had anyone knock on my door and tell me that. I'd be afraid. Sure I would. Sure would you. So would you. He's afraid, and he ran for his life for good reason. He had to. He had to run for his life because Jezebel was in control, not Ahab. He runs to Beersheba, which is, uh, he's, he's running from northern Israel, not the, uh, not the northernmost point, but pretty far north in Jezreel. He's running down through Jerusalem, through Judah, all the way down to the southernmost point of, Ju- of, Beer- of Judah. On the edge of the wilderness of the desert there's a tender little um, testimony here in the text that when he got to Beersheba in the southernmost point of Judah that he left his young man there in verse 3 he has a servant he has he's a prophet he's a called his assistant pastor his administrator Someone who tends to his needs so he can devote himself fully to ministry. Isn't that one of the other fears in ministry and and life sometimes? You're not just afraid for yourself, but you're afraid for those that you love and you're responsible for. Elijah cares for this young man. This young man has now associated with Elijah. And so if Jezebel is going to take Elijah's head, surely he's going to take his head too. We can be so harsh on the biblical characters. I, I really liked uh, flannel graphs when I was in Sunday school. I, I really did enjoy them. You know what I'm talking about, those little felt things. I, mean, I, I love them, and I'm thankful for them. It's great. But we who are of age need to stop reading our Bibles as though it's a flannel graph. These people get up in the morning and their stomach is off. These people have a hard time sleeping sometimes. How do you think he slept Apparently he didn't sleep. He ran through the night under the stars. These people weep. 
These people are tired and exhausted. These people are just like us in many ways. They have loved ones that they care for and they're scared for. So he arose and runs for his life. I don't, I have no rebuke of Elijah whatsoever. I think it was the wise thing to do. There's no indication that he had some kind of commission from the Lord to go down and face Jezebel toe-to-toe. I don't know why not. But I think we read in here a rebuke of Elijah where all that's warranted is just witnessing a man whose hopes are seemingly being realized after years of ministry, is exhausted, has spent himself, and then is utterly crushed. And in his fatigue and in his disappointment, is afraid. He's just a man, after all. He's not the one who called down the fire. He just talked to the God who is the God of fire. He runs for his life. And then verse 4, he goes about a day's journey into the wilderness. He's going out beyond where most people live. He's going out into the desert, essentially. And he's been running for multiple marathons, what we would call a marathon. And finally, he goes far enough into the wilderness, and he asks for himself, verse 4, that he might die. He's so discouraged, so brokenhearted, so exhausted, he just would rather die. That's life sometimes. It's extraordinary moment in Elijah's life, but he's not going to commit suicide because you shall not murder applies to not just other people, but to yourself. It's not even on the table. But in the brokenness of his heart, he appeals to God, oh God, please just take my life and let me come home. He's so brokenhearted that he's in that place. And his view of himself is shaped by the recent circumstances. He, he has a limited perspective on what has taken place and, and he has no haughty view of himself. He doesn't, from the Mount Carmel scene, doesn't think, wow, I'm an up-and-coming minister. He understands that even though God used him for some extraordinary displays of power, he identifies with the weakness of his fathers before him who were unsuccessful, his, the prophets before him were unsuccessful in calling Israel back to repentance. It's remarkable, but if you think about the prophets in the Old Testament, you know, we tend to think of those books of the Bible as kind of boring or esoteric or kind of hard and difficult to understand. 
But one of the things we need to appreciate is God called those Old Testament prophets for the most part to a ministry of failure where they really rarely saw success. I mean, rarely is the moment in the Old Testament where you see there's a revival or encouragement. God sent these men to preach and to teach and to pray and to call and to pour out their hearts, and yet they would never necessarily see their heart's fruition, desire come to fruition. So he's depressed. Yeah, he's depressed. He's, he's in despair. He's frightened. He's exhausted. He's weary. And in that place, what does God do? Well, God doesn't do what so many commentators and preachers would do, which is rebuke Elijah and make him an example of, of what not to do. God doesn't do any of that. When God finds his servant who has poured out his life for the Lord and has exhausted himself and spent himself for the Lord and now has run for his life. And what does God do? Give him a talking to? No. Gives him some hot food and a good drink of water. That is, there is so much there. Just at a, on a practical level, as we minister to one another, there are times, and I need to learn this, I have a hard time remembering this because I always want to fix things. There are times when we just need to understand that someone's really having a hard time. And we just need to tend to some of their basic needs knowing that God is the only one who can minister to their heart. Sometimes one of the greatest gifts we can give someone is just a listening ear. Sometimes we can give someone a meal. There was a moment um, after I had resigned from previous ministry and and wisely or wrongly, and and I was in shock, and my heart was broken, And I went to another minister friend, and I'll never forget, I showed up at his office door, and he was actually meeting with his young assistant or intern. And he just looked at my face and understood that I needed needed some help. And I'll never forget, he just gently told his intern, we'll continue this later, and took me aside and we just went and sat down and he just was with me. I was able to tell him a little bit of what had happened, but he didn't tell me to do anything different. He didn't give me his opinion as to whether what I was doing was right or wrong. He just listened. I'll never forget that ministry of mercy in that moment. God is But what I want you to see most of all is not advice on how to minister to those when they're hurting. This is your God. This is your God. Who when you are brokenhearted, and and maybe we're not like Elijah, maybe there's, and likely there are times when we're running for our life as it were, we're afraid and we shouldn't be. And, And what is the inclination of our God? To be short with us? 
to say, oh, come on, how many times do I have to tell you? Or does he minister mercy to us in grace? Oh, sure, the Lord rebukes us. Of course he does. And he corrects us like a father disciplines his son, Hebrews says. But what a tender picture of our God. It's, it's almost, it's an Old Testament mirror of what we learned this morning of our Lord. When he could have just lashed out at his disciples for their unbelief dullness and instead he he's gentle with them and he equips them god here ministers to his servant in his fear how kind god is how kind he is and tends to his most basic needs not once but twice eat arise and then lets him sleep if you've ever been in a time of deep grief And if you haven't, you likely will. One of the things that will surprise you is how tired you are. You're exhausted. It's a strange thing. It's a very, very strange thing. It is this fatigue that sets in and it feels like it's in your bones. And you know in your head certain truths and realities about God and about life. But there's just this heaviness and this fatigue. And God just lets his servants sleep. There's something wonderful about that. God lets his servants sleep and wants him to be refreshed. And so he sleeps and then he eats and then he sleeps again. And the angel of Yahweh, who's that? Who's the angel of Yahweh? Jesus. The Father is merciful and he sends his own Son in the form of the angel of Yahweh to tend to him. Isn't this just like our Lord? So merciful, so gentle, so kind. He equips him. He comes to him and he doesn't say, hey, Elijah, get up. Wake up. Comes over. Maybe takes him by the shoulder gently. That's what it says, right? Touched him. Touched him. No alarm. I hate alarms. They're necessary. But, but the, in, the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, comes and, and touches his servant to wake him gently And how do you think he said, arise, eat. (laughs) Arise, eat. He's with him. He's not chastening Elijah for being afraid. This isn't the time for a lesson on a five-step plan, how to deal with the Jezebels in your life. (laughs) Make a good book. It's not what Elijah needs right now. The angel of the Lord, arise, eat, for the journey's too great for you. Apparently, this isn't just Elijah's idea. This is God's idea. The angel of the Lord doesn't say, why are you going? Why are you doing this? No, he says he equips him for this journey. 
So, firstly, tonight we've considered, and we've spent a lot of time here, Yahweh ministers to his servant in his fear. This is our God. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, in verses 9 through 14, we find that Yahweh, God, meets his servant in his depression and despair. Now, this is really almost, I suppose, reiterating the first point. But we see that when Elijah comes to verse 8, Horeb, the mountain of God, that he lodges there in a cave. Now, I want to step back. Why, why the mountain of God? Why Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, which is where God met Moses, where God gave the Ten Commandments, where God came in smoke and lightning and fire and met with his people visibly and spoke to them audibly and gave to them the covenant that they were to keep and enter into if they were to be his people and he was to be their God. It's this place. 600 some years later. 600 years have gone by. And Elijah travels and it doesn't take 40 days and 40 nights to get there. I mean, you know, it's not a a short walk, but it shouldn't take 40 days and 40 nights. So there's more going on here. There is an identification here of Elijah in keeping with Moses, who likewise was with God for 40 days and 40 nights and without food, sustained by God. God is sustaining his servant, his covenant servant, and, and he, God meets with him. And he wants to meet with his servant at a particular place. And Elijah runs to that place, gets, arrives there because he wants to meet with God. Dale Ralph Davis is helpful at this point, And I think he's, I'm going to read a little bit of a section here. I think it's helpful and insightful. He says, I make the naive and novel proposal, says Davis, that Elijah, when he tells God, I've been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, he repeats that line in verse 10 and then down in verse 14. And and what Dale Ralph Davis is addressing is that many commentators will say, well, look at Elijah, isn't he boasting? I've been very zealous for God. He's patting himself on the back and they just... They criticize Elijah for what he's saying. Davis, on the other hand, says, I make the naive and novel proposal that Elijah may be telling the sober truth in verses 10 and 14. The usual diagnosis of commentators charge him with inflexibility and egocentrism. And he says, I'm not troubled by the doubling of the question. There's a reason for that, Davis explains. Is it too wild to consider that Elijah finding himself in the shuddering presence of the Almighty may have been speaking the truth? Elijah claims he is upset for God's sake, for God's cause. The Hebrew underscores this by placing the emphasis on the direct objects, especially your altars, your prophets. Note that Elijah only mentions his own case as illustrative, as confirmation of the general prophet's liquidation program by Jezebel. It sounds like Elijah is charging Israel with apostasy rather than crying over a failed ministry. 
Indeed, says Davis, I think verses 13 and 14 constitute a formal lawsuit against Israel. After the covenant Lord comes, he puts a formal question to the prosecutor who then levels the formal charges against the accused. I'll stop here. In my view, says Davis, Elijah's mission at Horeb was to bring covenant accusation against Israel for the breach of their covenant with Yahweh. Fascinating. Israel has broken her covenant with God made at Mount Sinai. And he speaks the truth. Verse 10, I have been very zealous. He has been. He's not boasting. He's not patting himself on the back. It's very much like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He says he's worked harder than any of the other apostles. Uh, Beth Moore, you still hear about her, in, in one of her books, So Long Insecurity, uh, said, said, to, said that the Apostle Paul had a fat head and was an egomaniac. Right. Uh, sure, the man was a sinner, but that's not what was going on there. He was just stating the truth. The fact is that Paul poured himself out in ministry. He wasn't boasting, just stating the truth. Elijah isn't boasting. He's just stating the truth of the situation. And in verse 10, we say, and this is where especially we, we call it, the, it even has a name. You probably know what it is, the Elijah syndrome. I've heard that so many times. And, and um, I've been told sometimes that I have the Elijah syndrome. What is the Elijah syndrome? It's thinking that, you know, you or, you know, your church or, um, you know, that there's so much disappointing news going on, for example, in New England, so few places where there are expository ministries that you have the Elijah syndrome. You're the only one. And Elijah gets beat up over this. How presumptuous to think that you're the only one. Well, pause and time out. He slew the prophets of Baal, 500 of them. Jezebel said she was going to take his head. How do we know that in the meantime of his running down to Beersheba and meeting God after 40 days and 40 nights, that Jezebel hadn't found, remember Obadiah, the servant of Ahab, had said he had hidden, hidden two groups of 50 of the true prophets in the caves? How do we know that in the meantime, Jezebel hadn't found them out and slaughtered them? We don't know. For all he knows, Elijah is actually stating the truth, that effectively that evil is so, is so powerful and Jezebel is so active that in the northern part of God's people, at least, it seems as if Elijah alone is left. It's an accurate perspective, if it, even if it isn't true numerically. He has been very zealous. Jezebel has been very effective, and it does appear as if he is left. Is this the end of God's people? Is this the end of God's covenant with Israel and with his people? Well, and for that, we're going to have to find out next Sunday, because I need to stop. Let's pray. We thank you for what we've learned already. We're so thankful, O oh God, for this portion of your word. We're so moved by this man, Elijah's love for you and love for your people. 
His zeal puts ours to shame, mine to shame. He loves you. He loved you. He loved your name. He loved your cause. He, he devoted his life. And he experienced a, a level of heartache and a level of fear for his life that likely none of us have ever experienced. And yet you sustained him. And we just want to worship you tonight for your ministry to him. And for the encouragement that that gives to us that that in our lowest moments of grief, when we are most disheartened or discouraged, even depressed, that you're a God who draws near to us gently, that you meet with us in that dark place, that you minister to our most basic needs, and that you love us. What a gracious God you are. We love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.